0: you're listening to the skylight books podcast we're an independent general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the los Feliz neighborhood of los angeles hosted by resident skylighters we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations group reads and bookseller chats happy listening hello my beautiful listeners and welcome to Skylight. this is the skylight books podcast and i'm your host lance morgan Today, I'm so excited to have Alexander Monet to talk about his new book, The Digital Closet, How the Internet Became Straight. Alexander Monet is assistant professor in the English Department in Cultural Studies program at George Mason University. Alex, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Lance. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: No, it's my pleasure to have you on. Um, Calling from the, it's so funny, we're calling from different sides of the country right now and it's very different weather. <laughs> I'm sweating in my office in 100 degree weather while it's raining over there, right? I'm looking at dark gray skies as rain pours down. Oh, I'm, it, look at that. The wonders of technology <laughs> connecting it all together. Uh, I do not know what I'm saying there. Um, so Alex, do you have a reading for us today? I do. I'm going to read to you from the introduction to the book.
1: Perfect, I'm so excited to hear it. I don't know why they trust me, dumb fucks. That was Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. We do not use social media and other internet platforms because we trust them, or at least nobody in my social circle seems to be such a dumb fuck in the words of Facebook founder and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. We use such platforms despite a lack of trust because they are no longer opt-in systems. The structure of the contemporary economy and governance increasingly demands digital participation. We are generally aware that the cost of this participation is our privacy. We submit to ceding our privacy upon realization that participation is not optional and escaping the scope of digital surveillance is near impossible, even if participation were truly optional. But what if the costs are greater than a total loss of privacy? It's hard to imagine that the asking price for access to internet platforms could be higher, but it is. I will be making the case throughout this book that the cost of admission also includes the continued marginalization of LGBTQIA communities and the amplification of misogyny and heteronormativity as they become automatically reproduced across the internet. This has both symbolic and material impacts on society. Decades of scholarship have demonstrated that representation in the media matters, that public visibility helps determine our collective assessment of who matters, which issues are important and what our obligations are as a society. It also has material impacts on members of the LGBTQIA community, like lack of access to health information, online community, online revenue streams, and the precarity of having to seek out things like dates, community, and customers offline. The rhetoric of Silicon Valley is filled with imagined inevitabilities. This is perhaps nowhere truer than in the rise of online content moderation. Billions upon billions of pieces of content are being uploaded to internet platforms every year. How could any individual, human or corporate, ever hope to keep up? Human nature can be brutish, hypersexualized, and vile. How can we hope to stem the deluge of offensive content reflective of these facts? In typical TED talk fashion, we are asked to believe that there is only one solution, but the silver lining is it's a panacea automated content moderation. By leveraging advanced machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques, the web can learn to police itself and algorithmically organized humans can pick up any slack. In so doing, machines will be able to parse what we'll term sexual speech, a broad term meant to encapsulate all potentially adult content, from discourse about sex, to sex education, to pornography, and other online sex work. However, a machine learning algorithm is only as good as its input data and training parameters. Unfortunately, when it comes to moderating sexual speech, the data is hopelessly flawed, and the parameters designed by Silicon Valley coders are not much better. They all contain heteronormative biases so severe it would be comical if it weren't so damn tragic. Our collective social discourse in the United States, particularly that which occurs online, contains rampant anti LGBTQIA biases. Contrary to many popular narratives, these biases have increased in recent years. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Def- Defamation's annual Accelerating Acceptance Report, conducted by the Harris Poll, reports radical declines in LGBTQIA acceptance in the United States since 2016. The percentage of non-LGBTQIA plus 18 to 34-year-olds classified as allies, or those who report being very or somewhat comfortable with LGBTQIA individuals in all situations, dropped precipitously in the Trump era. Whereas 63% of the US population were classified as allies in 2016, that number dropped to 45% by 2018. And the total of male allies dropped from 62% to only 35%. Many of the most powerful internet platforms are based in the United States and are deeply impacted by these biases. The prejudices of a particularly vocal subsection of the population infect the training data, code, and coders behind automated, automated content moderation to deleterious effects. The resulting algorithms end up overscrutinizing, policing and suppressing LGBTQIA+ discourse including community forums, resources, outreach initiatives, activism, sex education, women's bodies, sex workers and pornography. People targeted for algorithmic censorship have little recourse. While large vertically integrated companies like mainstream hetero porn production companies, the types of San Fernando Valley companies that produce aggressively heterosexual, frequently misogynistic, and now almost exclusively gonzo or point of view porn may escape censorship. Niche content producers of sexual speech ranging from LGBTQIA advocacy to feminist and queer pornography are rarely so lucky. The result of this new regime of automated content moderation is what I call the digital closet. This term is meant to signify the ways in which LGBTQIA individuals may be allowed to enter the digital public sphere, but only so long as they bracket and obscure their sexual identities. Their very being is so pornographied by automated content filters that they are largely barred from sexual expression online. To participate in our digital world, as, an, as is increasingly necessary today, requires a silence that is alienating and damaging. Any exit from the digital closet will be met with swift punishment. LGBTQIA plus people will find their content flagged and censored, their account banned or deprioritized and thus rendered invisible. will lose any streams of online revenue and will find this system weaponized against them by alt-right trolls looking to trigger all the aforementioned punishments. To add insult to injury, all of this will occur while tube sites like Pornhub operate walled gardens of heteronormative sexual expression unhindered by the new platform economy. It seems as if a treaty has been made between the people in a moral panic over the proliferation of pornography and the internet platforms at the expense of the LGBTQIA community. Porn will be given a corner of the internet where it will flourish, as long as it's not that kind of porn. Thank you for that reading. Wow, what a... Illuminating
0: reading on, you know, current internet culture. Um, I want to start off our conversation with, you know, how this is your first book, right?
1: Yeah, this is my first
0: book. This is your first book, one congrats. That's not an easy thing to do, especially. Did you start writing it during the pandemic?
1: Uh weirdly, no, I was writing it before the pandemic is a long project. Long project. Did you finish
0: it during the pandemic? I did. Yeah. Oof, that's still that's congrats. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, but, uh, how did you get uh this topic? What like led you to the to this topic for your
1: first book? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Lance, because this book has really nothing to do with my earlier work or my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real way, to, I mean, the honest way to say it would be that I stumbled into it as backwards. Uh, oh, really? I got uh invited to present with some people that were working on uh, different aspects of like graphics and computer vision and things like that at a conference. Uh, And I had never really worked on those sorts of issues before. I had worked on natural language processing, so how machines understand language. Uh, And so I was starting to look around for a case study that might be interesting and I, Realized that a lot of the instances of computers trying to see the world and understand what they were seeing uh, were like comical, right? Like most of the mm-hmm. instances you see in the news are just like total failures of these systems to perform in the way that they're they're meant to. Uh, and so I was trying to find a system that actually was working pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought about it for a while, and I realized that you know before twenty twelve. My friends and I used to play this game where you would uh, type a random word, uh, the most banal word you could think of into Google image search and see how far you had to scroll before you got to porn. So you could search things like lawn chair, pizza, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Uh, And it was rare anybody ever won because if you scrolled far enough, it would eventually lead to porn. And somewhere around 2012, Google broke our game and as I was reading more up on it, I realized it was because they had instituted uh, computer vision algorithms to automate the censorship of porn. And so I thought, you know, these algorithms seem to be operating better than a lot of the other computer vision algorithms. I'll look at those. And then as I looked at them, I just kept finding hetero and cisnormative biases stacked on top of each other. And, you know, the evidence mounted, uh, and no one was really talking about it. So I, you know, just kept developing it and developing it. And it became a book.
0: I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's interesting because you think of like sites like Google and uh, all these, they're like forward thinking. They're supposed to be like, you know, freeing us from like uh, the restraints of like censorship and like trying to like get us connected to like, you know, things that we wouldn't get if without the internet uh -hmm. this like endless supply of data and information but like it's just it's it's not true right it's not uh it's not a true thing that we're getting there especially for uh queer and uh you know non-normative uh thinking and uh culture um this it's it's so funny because your book also talks about how like it's not just the the you know conservative uh conservatives doing this conservatives christians anti uh queer and uh sex groups and, and like you know uh those people it's a lot of liberals who are also doing this how'd you um what like how'd you stumble upon that
1: yeah, I mean, I, so in the book I call them strange bedfellows because you know mm-hmm. there there's a, a very weird alliance of people that you would really never expect to see uh, collectively organizing around a, an individual topic. Um, I a lot of the the sort of alliance comes from historical uh, anti-porn organizing in the 90s, right? People mm-hmm. were spun up into a panic in the late 90s uh, when the internet started coming into everyone's households uh, about children's unwanted exposure to pornography, which uh, whenever you hear that term, you need to like be careful and start reading more closely and figure out what's going on because it's uh, it touches on a nerve in American society that makes it both, uh, you know, sort of really powerful and really nefarious. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has a really strong rhetorical power to get people to just automatically agree, right? You never Mm -hmm. want to be the person arguing that like, you know, children should be exposed to pornography, uh, all the pornography on the internet, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Or at least you usually don't want to be seen as that person in public. And so it really shuts down dissent. And behind the sort of facade of that argument, Uh, people tend to layer their own uh, sort of interests uh, in terms of uh, blocking certain types of pornography, blocking sex education, uh, fighting against sex workers, uh, Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff like that. Um, And so really, it was like looking at people that were using that language to make their argument and trying to figure out, you know, what the actual impacts of the legislation they were uh, passing were figuring out how the, the regulations they were passing were actually affecting people on the ground. Uh, and it tends to be remarkably similar. There seems to be a, a lot of consensus across liberals and conservatives, uh, mm. across alt-right extremists and uh, Christian evangelicals uh, that you know, super sensitive over-policing of pornography online is, is the way to go, even if it's at the expense of queer people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels like it's targeted too, you know, it's, it feels like usually, I mean, people of color, queer people, you know, any sort of like radicalization, usually those are the targets of it, but it's always them, it's always like, it's always one of the same groups who does, who are a part of this, but it's, it's so funny because before I, um, I think a few days ago before this episode um was recorded is recordings currently being recorded but like when you're listening it will be past tense um before this before this recording i was talking to a friend about it and they were surprised because they're like i see the internet as like the super queer space and like you know i see all my content is queer and the people i follow all of it and then we were thinking about it we're like is that because you know it's cur- we've curated this after years of being on the internet and like is that also a way for us to not like see the p- bigger problem you know we all live in our little internet bubble because we're like we don't want to see what the
1: other side is doing but like that's a problem right yeah it's i mean it's a super interesting point lance right like i think there's a couple couple issues in what you said right so mm-hmm. one is the issue of like filter bubbles or echo chambers that we're all aware of right we mm-hmm. tend to assume that like our corner of the internet is what the internet really looks like, which can be really misleading when we're trying to understand, you know, the internet as a whole or the larger uh, effects it's having. Uh, And then the other thing that, you know, I started unearthing as I was working on this book is that there's a really big difference between like you and I's ability to find what we want online uh, as -hmm. people that, you know, grew up through different phases of the internet and might have more experience with it. uh, And uh, you know, like a 15 year old's ability to navigate uh, the internet. And I think for me, one of the points that's like really dangerous here is that like, yeah, sure, there is queer pornography. There is queer content that you can find if you know what you're looking for or if you know how Mm -hmm. to look for it. Uh, But for a lot of people, they don't really have the sort of media literacy to to get there yet. We just assume mm-hmm. that all of these young people are are really good at the internet, and I mean, I teach a lot of them, and it's not universally true. There's going to be yeah. a lot of uh, queer youth out there that don't have the same access that uh, people of our generation had uh, in terms of connecting and building communities and experimenting with uh sexuality and things like that online so I I think part of it is a a literacy issue uh and you know assuming that everyone is is able to like locate things and evade these barriers uh as well as each other uh part of it is an echo chamber thing yeah uh part of it is just like where you get your content right
0: my yeah, opinion. it seems like a privilege problem too. you know, the privilege of people who can be in that echo chamber are like, you know, not be not thinking past that like they don't have to. It's it's interesting, especially right now where um, you know people like Florida's in the in the news right now for everything for trying to, you know take take a lot of safe spaces away for queer youth there and like, you know make it harder for them to find resources and kind of be like you know being tightening that grip around their freedom to find it because a lot of i mean a lot of people my age um and you know a little bit older a little bit younger have um found a lot of freedom on the internet to you know explore who we were and what we were i remember tumblr uh rest in peace uh <laughs> the tumblr days were so much fun because you we were just like oh it's me and my friends who i've never met and probably will never meet again but like it's all of us talking about you know gay shit and how fun that was but like i mean we all if you don't know what happened to tumblr it got a untimely death
1: um when was that like 2016 2017? 2017 so 2017 it, it was after the congress passed the foster cesta legislation that cracked mm-hmm. down on all internet companies uh and conflated uh sex work with human trafficking um so all of these companies tried to <laughs> to crack down on any sort of explicit content anywhere on their sites
0: i remember like a lot of people equating that to like putting a lot of queer terminology in the DSM, like it just like felt like, you know, grouping. They were like, this is close enough where we can group this together and demonize all of this without like, you know, getting a lot of flashback because the conservative groups will be happy. And honestly, the, a lot of liberals, and by that I mean, centrists also will back that too because it's close enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah like the untimely death of that it just it it seems like where where are they where are they finding community and you know it just uh it's so it's so interesting and sad at the same time um a lot of your book talks about like pornography and sex work too like in terms of like heteronormativity like how it's it's so interesting to me because like sex work and you know sex work and pornography has been around for uh, ever like yeah, cave millennia. drawings <laughs> millennia like cave drawings since since we learned how to since we opened our eyes basically um, how how is the it seems like it comes in waves, right? Like there are waves where it's very like queer and you see like, oh wow, maybe it's changing. And then it just like the next day it could go down. How was it, did you see a lot of that in your research?
1: Yeah, because I was writing during that time period where FOSTA-SESTA was passed. So mm-hmm. I started before that and was really collecting examples during that. And the the night and day difference was uh really sad and difficult Mm -hmm. to learn about right uh so i mean talking about uh you know heteronormativity in the the sex work industry uh you know seeing sites where sex workers would uh you know figure out which clients were dangerous getting shuttered uh finding personal ad sites getting shuttered uh to the point where people had to go out in the street and solicit uh strangers again uh, mm. and hearing their stories about that was horrifying, right? Uh, right? It's just like a really precarious position that we put people in knowing that it was not going to stop anything, right? Like it did very little good and it mm. put a lot of people in harm's way. And that burden is borne uh, disproportionately by people of color, disabled people, trans sex workers, things like that. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's throughout the sex work industry, you know, it, it, you're always going to see like it get worse and worse, the more intersections of marginalized identity a person participates in. Right. Mm. So like anything that I trace in the book has like, you know, a pretty bad impact on like, a white cis gay man. Uh, but like, as you start adding layers of marginalization, it just like amplifies. Um, and you can see that really clearly in like the stories of people that were forced back onto the street to do Mm -hmm. you know real classic sex work right soliciting john's on the street corner and like it
0: it's so it's i mean queerness has always been a part of sex work and it just to take that to try and take that out of it and your book talks about it it's bland it's the same you're getting you're getting the same thing you're getting nothing new you're getting no innovation and no creativity and it just it seems it seems like taking a step back or somehow taking a step back while not taking a step maybe like a backwards escalator um yeah like Like right you're like stepping on an escalator going the wrong direction you're not moving but still somehow you're going
1: back like i said in the book i i think that that really is the porn industry's deepest, darkest secret, right? Uh, they, like, make money off of us thinking that porn is unstoppable and that it's, uh, like, horribly misogynistic and things like right. that, which, you know, it can be, but uh, the their deep secret is that it's boring. It's just, it's the same thing over and over and over again. They just mimic really each is. other. Uh, and it even trickles down into, uh, I mean, there's very little... Uh, resemblance to like amateur pornography anymore because people are monetizing it, right? So like they call right. them pro-ams or pro-amateurs, uh, but even they are impacted by this, right? Like the, the metadata that you can use to like describe the scene that you're producing are all standardized by whatever site you're uploading it to, right? So right. like the very ideas you have for like what to shoot and how to shoot it are derived from, you know, mainstream porn. It just ends up being Really, really wrote for uh, uh, an era where supposedly you can you know publish anything and everything and all sexual desires are available at a whim to explore. right? It just doesn't really play out in that fantastical way that that people describe it. It's
0: like we're hitting a point where there's there's too much that there's nothing. It's like yeah. a singularity point. Oh my God, am I solving? Is this like the meaning of life? <laughs> there's too much porn. There's too much porn. So there's no porn. Um, I solved it. It's um, yeah. so the number 42. So yeah, it's, we got there. This, guys, you heard it first here. The Digital Closet answers the mysteries of life. It answers that question. What is life? Um, I'm going to have Lance my... as
1: my co author from now
0: on so that we can solve all the world's mysteries. I'm gonna take a pen and just, in all the books in the store, just write that as a blurb on the cover, if that's okay with you, if you give me that.
1: And write math equations of like, you know, life equals porn, porn equals equals null. (laughs)
0: I'll do like, I'll put just strange symbols on it too. You know, just go fully in. I'm just going to dive in. Um, No, that's, it's even like, even supposedly queer porn, by that I mean like gay porn, uh, targeted mostly at gay men, which is like, sometimes the queerest porn you get out there um, it just it it's it feels like still trying to copy uh hetero porn and trying to be as heteronormative as possible while like being like yeah but technically we're two guys it's like okay but like if you have to say well technically there's a problem yeah uh it's it's it just seems like it seems like we're headed in the direction no one really saw us going towards. Um, is there is there a solution? Is there like, you know, ways forward that you, from studying all this, like can theorize, maybe can help push us forward?
1: Yeah, uh, so I, I don't know. I think that it's weird to write a book of like, cynical critique and not offer anything like that, right? Even though it's the it's the hardest part of a book to write, because it's where you're really vulnerable, because you're sort of, it's the most easily proved wrong, because you can just look back at the book in a year or five years and say, well, obviously that that was totally wrong. So I I tried to put together my best, but caveat here, very provisional and like in need of uh, like supplementation by like activists on the ground and people that experience different you know perspectives and different echo chambers online. But I tried to put together, like, from what I had read, some of the, like, things we could do, right? And I organized them from sort of uh, revisionist everyday goals. Uh, And those would be things like uh, getting major social media companies to commit to an anti-censorship pledge, especially around queer content. Uh, Because I think that that's easy to mobilize around, it has, uh, like, it has a successful base of activists already working uh, in the area. I think that's something that's doable. Uh, others, similarly, uh, like revisionist things would be like keeping a database uh, that monitors what content is getting censored so we can produce better knowledge about what's getting censored, why and where. Because a lot of the stuff that I was trying to find for the book was really ephemeral, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. the content's getting taken down so the content doesn't exist anymore. What you do right. find are like a tweet here and there from someone that no- that notes that they had content deleted on such and such a date, or every once in a while a journalist would publish a piece on something getting taken down. And so some mm. sort of like uh, group that monitors what's getting taken down and can sort of hold companies accountable uh, so that they can't just say that it's a fluke or uh, you know, a one-off instance. Uh, these are the sorts of everyday things uh, that, that would be really helpful. Organizing, uh, mm-hmm. demanding commitments, uh, collecting uh, and producing better knowledge about what's going on. Uh, I don't think any of those will really get us across the finish line. They're really helpful, they're noble goals, but they're sort of plugging a sinking ship, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the bigger goals that I think really get to the the meat of the issue, but are more idealistic are things like uh, thinking about making social media into public utilities, right? Mm -hmm. Not letting a single person uh, control what two to 3 billion users see on an everyday basis. Uh, So uh, publicizing the companies. Uh, Another big one for me is uh, defunding the police. Right. Uh, The criminal justice system and its relationship with sex work is really central in a lot of these problems. Uh, And it's really at the nexus point where a lot of these problems become physically dangerous, uh, like mortally dangerous for people. Uh, And Mm. so I think that there's a lot of connection between. Uh, that you might not expect between arguments over not censoring queer stuff online uh, and some of the Black Lives Matter protests around defunding the police. Uh, and it,
0: and on that, I mean like, yeah, so like the criminalization of, and I mean in popular culture too, you see it like you know, it, it makes sense why, you know, the police is after a lot of sex work because, you know, like look at, TV shows like Law and Order SVU, which is like there's a lot of harm. Or like there's I mean, all of those cop shows oh usually have episodes about sex and how like, you know, sex work is the more evil and sex workers are like the dehuman in some ways and like lesser than versus like, oh, these are people, these are people that you're around all the time, right? You're around, everyone has some sort of connection to sex work in one way or the other. And like, it's 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 something that like you, a lot of people don't wanna look at. And it's, I mean, and then we let the cops in and not do anything about it, especially in a city like LA where like, you know, sex work is, huge here there's uh porn in the porn industry is huge here but like still the LAPD you know what I shouldn't finish that (laughs) I they know where I work um (laughs) but yeah no sorry I was interrupting you
1: well I mean maybe if they put you and I in charge of this Lance we can censor propaganda instead of the queer pornography you tell Um, me when you tell me when yeah the The only thing I I was going to say was that uh, so when I was doing this part, this end of the book where I was trying to sort of come up with solutions, my editor at MIT, I'm really thankful for this, you know, pushed me to be more imaginative, right? Like I was being Mm -hmm. a little conservative because the book's supposed to sell to a public audience as well as academics. Mm -hmm. It's my first book. I didn't want to, you know, offend anyone. And so I was kind of holding some punches. Uh, And, you know, she said, really just go for it and say what you think and I think the issue is that uh when you're trying to imagine a future that's like really better it's uh an exercise in utopia right uh which is hard for us to do in this day and age right it's hard to imagine something better it's hard to imagine an exit uh it and uh even if you imagine it it's really hard to imagine it in anything but fuzzy detail Right. Because so much of it is going to play out in historically specific terms and different people need to come to the table and negotiate it. And I think you might like this, but like when I was trying to think of like the fuzzy image that came closest to like what I would aim for, it was uh, that meme, uh, uh, fully automated luxury gay space communism. Right? Oh, like I, yeah. I think that's yeah. uh I think that's what I'm looking for Lance uh, this is the
0: future this is the future that uh millennials want right That, that sort of not that specifically but like that you know that idea of that meme structure and no I mean I sign me up tell me where the the what is it the petition what's that petition organization called the we can, oh, why can I remember right now? The sign this, go sign this. Yeah. Yeah, just send it my way. You have my email. Um, listeners, listen, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's let's organize and, you know, save the internet. Oh my God, save the internet. That sounds like a great, that's a great, uh, cat, that's a great logo. Not logo What's the word I'm looking for. Um, catchphrase for us, save the internet. Save no. the internet, save the world. Um, the last question I wanna ask you is, you know, this, if it, I don't know why that in, in the past 20 years, oh God, 20 years, the internet has, the internet has, you know, become this normalized thing now where it's like, it's a part of all of our lives. It's there every day. Like we can't escape it from from like the time, from when you open your eyes till you close it how like it doesn't it feels normalized but like what you're talking about is like radical thinking still it's the radicalization of what we what the internet has you know been crudely turned into by a lot of you know conservative thinkers people who want things who are kind of who want to fight the internet in 2022 they want to fight the internet like is how how should we look at this in like a radical viewpoint to like, you know, change it, to make it better, to get, you know, regain control of what we're seeing and what we can, you know, what we can contribute to the world through the internet as queers, as queer people, as not, um, as people who don't fit the heteronormative uh, structure.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting and, hard question Lance right yeah Yeah, Uh, because a a lot of it has to do with like pushing for I mean in some ways pushing for the internet to live up to its own original hype and promise and in some ways Mm -hmm. correcting some of the like libertarian principles at that promise that are problematic right uh right uh like the sort of wild wild west aspect of it where like anyone can just hurt anyone however they want and there's no uh accountability or consequences right that's not right. something i want to preserve but some of the promises about you know open and free access to knowledge and mm-hmm. uh like democratic uh structure you know that's just stuff that we could still aim for by you know looking to deconstruct platforms uh social Mm -hmm. media platforms and make it so that the web isn't like right now the internet is really synonymous with social media platforms and like high-end brands right like if i go to google and search something i'm never getting someone's like blog or geocities page anymore i'm you know i'm getting corporate branded like magazine Mm -hmm. articles or social media links so uh, i think you know moving away from the the sort of platform structure of the internet uh, is one way that would be really useful uh, to sort of circulate ideas better as well Mm. as fighting to take control of platforms or push for better governance at platforms. None of these really can save us because of the the regulations Mm. that are in place and the sort of capitalist machine behind them. So uh, again, I come back to gay space communism right like you need uh, you need you need a real revolution if you want things to to actually be utopic uh otherwise we're just plugging holes in a sinking ship uh and it's a never-ending fight
0: um gay space communism sounds like the the like political space drama that needs to come out now like who's making this movie who has, I mean, Barry, Je- oh, Barry Jenkins, I want someone to, you know, who's a great queer filmmaker who I want to see make this? I mean, Alex, I'm just saying, you've said the words. Uh, if in 2025 I hear um, Alex Monet's gay space drama is coming out, I'm tuning in. HBO Max, you heard us. You heard it here first. Uh no.
1: Well, HBO Max can hire us together. I need partners. Uh, and you you, you know that LA scene, right? Like, I got uh, you. <laughs> I got you. We'll do this together.
0: Uh, um, Alex, this has been great. This has been so much fun to talk about. Um, no, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Um, to our listeners, thank you for, you know, either coming back to listen again. You, We love you. We appreciate you. You are you mean so much to me and everyone at Skylight, but also to our new listeners. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. And if this is your first episode, go back and listen to some episodes. We have some um, we have some really good backlog and keep on listening. We have some good episodes coming out like this one. Um, and to everyone listening, you have a great, great rest of your day. Stay cool because I don't know what the future is looking like, but it's hot right now. Um, and, you know, stay beautiful. Do something nice for yourself.